0: the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth. It's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you uh, as we continue the 13th uh, annual season of the Faith and Life Lecture Series. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, I'm, I'm wondering, is anyone here for the first time to their first Faith and Life event? Okay, wonderful. Special welcome to all of you. We're very glad you're here. Um, <clears throat> if you've followed the series over the last 13 years, you know that we've cast a very broad net, lots of different kinds of topics, Um, It's been a long time actually since we scheduled someone from the medical profession and we are delighted tonight to have someone who's doing some very important work around um, end-of-life issues, which you'll hear about. You can read his biography in the program. He is on the faculty at Harvard. He's done a lot of other wonderful things. He has a new book out. Uh, We were talking earlier today. He said had he written this even a few years ago, it would probably not have been nearly as well received as it has been uh, since he wrote it, but uh, the timing seems to be right. Um, You can pick this up, by the way, and he will sign it following our um, talk. I always like to add um, something about our speakers that's not indicated in your bulletin, so what I will tell you about tonight's speaker is um, I wrote him... Oh, gosh, it's been over a year ago now, easily. And, you know, the sort of table stakes for our speakers is that they're Christian. But we cast such a broad net that it's not always easy to tell if they're Christian based on their resumes. So I had a hunch that he was, but it didn't say that in his CV. Um, So I wrote him and said, you know, here's what we're kind of doing. Is this the kind of thing that would interest you? Assuming we would have a conversation. Instead, he just wrote back and said, I'd love to do it. And so then I had to back up and say, okay, just, um, there's no, there's no easy way to ask this, but, um, you know, one of the things we assume about our speakers is that that they're Christian. And so then he writes back and starts quoting the New Testament to me in Greek, uh, talking, and he is, uh, he is, I I will tell you, he's our first Eastern Orthodox uh, speaker, so that's one distinctive thing. And after he graduated from college, he went to Mount Athos for a month to live with monks. So maybe he'll tell you about that later. In any case, we are delighted to have him. Will you help me welcome Dr. Angelo Vallandes?
1: So it's a real pl- oops. Good evening. It's a real pleasure to be here. I want to thank St. Philip the Deacon congregation, Reverend Tim, for inviting me. It's rare that I have an opportunity to think about faith in and medicine because far too often doctors just think about faith in medicine. And so it's been a wonderful day here spending the time with Reverend Tim and some of the students at the U of M, thinking about how do we deal with issues that surround all of our lives, and look through those issues through the prisms that many of us are comfortable with, the prism of faith, but also we live in a society where we also espouse the prism of medicine, Western medicine. It's a wonderful time to be sick. There is no better time in the history of medicine to be sick. There is no better time in the last 2,000 years to have advanced cancer, to have advanced lung disease, to have a couple of kidneys that don't work. Because what we're able to do today, probably when most of you where, in high school, we never dreamed of tailored genetic therapies, advanced chemotherapies, dialysis machines. We are able to do things today that, when I started medical school, weren't even imaginable. That is amazing. So if you're sick today, you pick the right time. But there is also no worse time in the history of medicine to be sick. When you're sick, your doctor rarely asks you what's important to you. Your doctor rarely asks you what are your religious beliefs, and how does your spirituality impact what sort of medical care I can provide you, especially at the end of life. It's the worst time to be sick because doctors focus on the technical aspects of health care while forgetting the patient who's sitting right in front of them. So although It is the best of times. It is also the worst of times. Now, many of you are here not because you wanted to hear me, but you saw the topic. And many of you are here not because you yourselves were sick or are sick, but you're here on behalf of your loved ones, your parent, with advanced dementia, your dad who had advanced cancer, your spouse, your partner, perhaps even for some of you, a child who was seriously ill. And you remember that conversation that you had with them and when both of you were sitting across that doctor's desk and that doctor never asked your loved one what was important to them. What did they want now that they had an advanced illness? How did their religious beliefs impact the journey that all of us are going to take someday? We're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. So we have to have an open discussion about what's important to us. So tonight, over the next 40 minutes or so, I want you to think about that time that you sat with your mother across from that doctor's desk, and when that doctor utterly failed, both your mother and you. And can all of us try to get it right? When we ask most Americans where do they want to die, what do they tell us? Home. In that most prestigious scientific journal called Consumer Reports, Oh, you did get a laugh. Okay. I hear you're a tough crowd for humor. In that most prestigious journal called Consumer Reports, nearly 90% of Americans, 90%, when asked, want to die at home, surrounded by their loved ones, and focused on comfort. But what are the facts? Where do most Americans die today? Hospitals. If you're over the age of 65, two thirds of Americans are going to die in a healthcare facility, often tethered to a machine, and in a good deal of pain. That misalignment between the type of medical care people want and the type of medical care they end up getting in our healthcare system today is what I consider the biggest problem in healthcare. Now, you've all been reading about it in the press. Every day on the front page of the New York Times, every day on CNN, Fox, MSNBC, there's another story about care at the end of life. Unfortunately, the prism through which many of these stories are reported on is through the prism of cost. And I'm not going to lie to you. End-of-life care in America is extremely expensive. But i got to be honest with you. I'm a doctor in the trenches. And I can't say I care all that much about cost when I know our government gives 20% of the GDP to the Department of Defense. Give more to health care. Did you ever feel that you got enough health care? What I'm concerned about as a practicing physician is that all this care that's happening at the end of life is simply unwanted care. When you tell your clinician, you know, Doc, if I have an advanced terminal illness, please focus on comfort. Please focus on letting me have whatever time I can have with my family. And if we in the healthcare system can't deliver that, then that's a problem. That's unwanted care, and we should call it for what it is. It's a medical error. It's no different than a doctor who operates on the wrong side of the body. It really isn't. You know, if I told you that there's a doctor in your local hospital who doesn't operate, amputate on the right side of the body, you would never go to that hospital. But when I tell you that that same hospital delivers care at the end of life that many patients simply would not want, we still end up going to that hospital. No more. Although in every advertisement in American healthcare today, you hear about this thing called patient-centered care, I'm going to be honest, it ain't patient-centered. You know what it is? It's doctor-centered. When you come and meet me, we're going to have a conversation, but I'm going to write the rules. I'm going to ask you about your medications. I'm going to ask you about allergies. I'm going to ask you about your surgical history. but. I'm not going to ask you about what's important to you. I'm not going to ask you what your religion is and if that actually has an impact on the type of care that you want. Why is it? Why can't all of us take back our health care? You should be in the driver's seat, not me. So why is it that we live in a health care system where so much is going wrong at the end of life? Well, I think the main reason is that most doctors simply aren't sitting down, slowing down, and having the conversation. For me to be called MD through four years of medical school, three years of residency, three different fellowships in four years, I had to show competency in performing 10 instances of CPR. I had to show competency to intubate a patient. I had to show competency to perform a lumbar puncture. Once I showed competency in those things, I was called doctor. But not a single senior physician ever certified that I could actually talk. To a patient. Is it any surprise we're in the mess that we're in when all we focus on training our young doctors, our residents, where all we focus is simply on the technical aspects of healthcare, entirely forgetting the patient sitting in front of us? Most of you aren't even being looked at when you see your physician. I'm too busy looking at my laptop, at the screen. What kind of healthcare system is that? But, you know, today, we live in a visually literate society. Sometimes words may not be enough. Sometimes we need images or videos to help all of us know what questions should we be asking our doctors and what are our options for medical care when we have a serious illness. And so part of what I'm going to talk about tonight is... How can you empower yourself to know the type of questions you should be asking when you are sitting with your mom who has an advanced illness, or when you're sitting with your spouse and you're across from that desk? How can you empower yourself to make sure that you and your loved one get the right care at the right time, but on your terms? But before we get there, I thought I'd begin with a story. I'm a kid from Brooklyn, and we like stories. I want you to meet Professor Helen Thompson. Helen Thompson was one of this country's foremost literary critics on the poetry of Walt Whitman. How many of you are familiar with the poetry of Walt Whitman? Great. A lot of the younger people in the audience, not so familiar. You know, when I asked my medical students and residents that same question the last time around, I didn't get a single hand raised. Well, I was born and bred in Brooklyn, New York, where Whitman spent the first half of his life. So every other street corner had a Whitman elementary school, and all the pupils were forced to memorize the opening lines of Whitman's magnum opus, The Leaves of Grass. So Professor Thompson and I hit it off, because we could both recite those lines. I celebrate myself, and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Now you may be asking yourself, why did I come to church at 7 p.m. to hear some doctor tell me about Helen Thompson or the poetry of Walt Whitman? What I haven't told you is that Helen Thompson was my patient just a few years ago. What I haven't told you is that Helen Thompson was an elderly female with widely metastatic cancer being admitted to my hospital. What I haven't told you is that Helen Thompson was dying. And so, on that day that I admitted her to the hospital, I did a history I did my physical, and then I got to that part in the conversation that all doctors get really uncomfortable with. And that's when the words of Whitman metamorphosed into other words. Words like goals of care, CPR, breathing machines, hospice care. And so I looked at the professor, I said, Professor, you have seen scores of doctors before ever laying eyes on me. Surely your oncologist, pulmonologist, primary care doctor, someone has asked you what's important to you. Surely someone has started the conversation. Surely someone has asked you, what are your religious beliefs? Surely someone has taken the time to put you in the driver's seat. And that's when the professor looked at me, and she gave me a blank stare. And I bet it's the blank stare that all patients give to providers when we start this conversation. And so I sat down with her, and I started my own conversation with her. I said, Professor, I think it's important we have a forest from the trees perspective I think it's important that we know the risks and benefits of all these interventions. But Professor, I need to know who you are. What are your beliefs? What do you want now that you have an advanced illness? And she gave me a stare again. And perhaps I didn't know what to do. And that's when I naively asked her. I said, Professor, would you mind taking a walk with me to the intensive care unit so I can actually show you some of these things? Of course, she obliged. I didn't walk her to the ICU, I put in a wheelchair, and I rolled her down to the intensive care unit. Got to show her a breathing machine. Got to show her a patient on a breathing machine. There were a couple of residents there in the ICU, and what the professor was able to do was to get a sense of the place to hear the beeps and buzzes, to see the colorful monitors, to feel the rhythm of the intensive care unit. Now, as fate would have it, I obviously didn't plan on this, but there was a code blue in the ICU. And that's when I immediately whisked the professor out of the intensive care unit, but not before she caught a few glimpses of CPR. When we went back to her room, she looked at me and said, words, words, words. Angelo, I understood every single word that you said before. CPR, breathing machines, hospice. I am, after all, a professor of English. But I had no idea that's what you were talking about. Doesn't look like that on television. And that's when it occurred to me, at a young professional age, that so often in healthcare, we, as doctors, sometimes try to have these conversations, but patients and families often think about television, where the miracle cure for your advanced cancer is right around the corner, where everybody in the hospital survives CPR, and where everybody on a breathing machine looks like George Clooney. Third time they laughed. (laughs) Reverend Tim, you led me astray. A pastor leading me astray. So, after that experience, I started taking all my patients and their loved ones on their own personal tour of our intensive care unit. And what I did is I not only took my patients with a serious illness, I took their families. I brought them to our intensive care unit. I brought them to our dialysis unit. I sat down and told them, look, I know you've seen so many doctors and no one's actually started this conversation, but I think you need to ask these questions of any doctor. What's important to you? What's a good day? And if you're not having a good day, what do you want me to focus on? quality of life, quantity of life? Are there any events coming up that I need to bear in mind when we're making these sort of decisions? Is there that 50th anniversary that you'll do anything to make? Is that grandchild's graduation that you'll do anything to be there? Have you spoken to your pastor about what your beliefs are and how that impacts these sort of decisions? Have you reflected on what it means to suffer? What does it mean existentially? What, is it, what does this life mean? How does that impact what I do? Now, the nurses got to quick, quickly realize what I was doing. Nurses are the smartest people in the hospital. Don't be led astray. It's not the doctors, it's the nurses. And the nurses loved what I was doing. In fact, they encouraged me and would even tell me which patients to bring. Unfortunately, there were other nurses who um, quickly put an end to my tour business because they knew I was breaking patient confidentiality. And so here's the conundrum that I was left with. How could I help patients and families know what questions to ask themselves, to ask their doctors? How could I let people know what their options are for medical care when they have a serious illness? And that's when a group of us came up with the idea of creating short films to help patients take back health care. What if you knew all the questions you needed to ask your doctor? What if you knew your medical options? You went home, you went on YouTube, you you saw a video that laid it out for you. And then you went with your mother with advanced cancer and then saw the oncologist. Is it possible that if patients are in the driver's seat, they would actually do a better job of delivering end-of-life care than we doctors do? I think so. And so that's what I'm going to encourage you to do tonight, is take back health care. Don't let that doctor, that hospital, that healthcare system dictate the type of care that you end up getting. But why don't you start the conversation with your doctor? Why don't you ask the questions that are important to you? I know that all of you have horror stories when it comes to doctors. I do too, because I'm up here not only as a doctor, but as a son. And so I see firsthand with my own parents what it's like to get bad care in America today. But you know, I think it's important for all of us to recognize that the solution to this really is in your hands, but also in our community's hands. What if we made it the new normal to talk about this? What if this Thanksgiving, instead of just watching football and eating turkey, you actually sat down with your kids or your spouse? and you actually had a conversation about what a good day is for you, and if you do have a serious illness and you're not able to do those things that give you joy and happiness, what sort of medical care would you want? What if all of us, after Sunday church, we actually talked about this as a congregation? What if we didn't wait until we were vomiting after third-line chemotherapy at 3 in the morning in the ER, and it's the first time that you're hearing these questions. Can we, as a community, take back health care? I think we can. But to help you imagine what happens when people actually are in the driver's seat, I'm going to show you something unusual for a church setting. What we do is not only create these short videos, and the one that I'll show you is on YouTube, but we actually follow patients to see what happens when people actually know the questions that they should ask. And so I'm gonna review one research study in church. You'll never have it done. I'm sure most of you have not had a research study in church, but I think it'll help you understand what's possible as a community if you all knew the questions you needed to ask and you actually knew your options. What we did at my hospital, Massachusetts General Hospital in Godless Boston... (laughs) Fourth. What we did is we took 50 patients, all with advanced cancer, all with about six months or less to live. And what we did is we split the group, we randomized the group into two groups. Half of the group had a discussion about what was important to them and what sort of medical care they wanted now that they had advanced terminal cancer. The other half had the same discussion, but then, they saw a short video that explained to them these are the questions you should ask your doctor and these are your medical options. And just so that we're all on the same page, these are the three options that everybody in the state, everybody in America has when it comes to medical care. They're called life-prolonging care, limited care, and comfort care. Just so that we're all on the same page, with the first one, life-prolonging care, that essentially means the goal is to prolong life, regardless of the toll in terms of pain and suffering. If you choose this, that means you do want CPR attempted. You do want to be placed on a breathing machine. You do want to be in the intensive care unit. With the middle category, limited care, it's essentially hospitalization, but without the ICU. And then the third category is comfort care, which is essentially focusing on symptom relief. Those are the three options that everybody in America has, and those are the three options that all 50 patients had. But for the group that was randomized to the video, they got to see visual images of each of those categories of care. Now, I'm actually going to show you a video that is on YouTube, I'm not going to give you the link yet. You have to wait until the end for the link. (laughs) Um, But I'm actually going to show you the video. And the question that I have for you is when you sat with your loved one, and that doctor forgot to ask or chose not to ask your loved one any of these questions, what could have happened? if you and your loved one actually knew what questions to ask. And we have our volume up. Talking about medical care at the end of life can sometimes be difficult, but it doesn't have to be a sad conversation. There's a common three-step approach to do it well. The three steps are start the process and have the conversation. Talk to your loved ones about your values and what's important to you. And then talk to your healthcare team about your medical choices. Let's review each one of these steps so you can make sure you get the right care at the right time and on your own terms. Don't wait for your doctor to start the conversation. Start the discussion on your own with family and friends. Here are four questions that can help start the process. What kinds of things are most important to you? What concerns do you have about getting sick or needing medical care? If you were very sick, are there any specific medical treatments that might be too much for you? And finally, what are your spiritual, philosophical, religious, or cultural beliefs that would influence your medical decisions? Considering these questions is only the beginning. These reflections are not a one-time event, but a process that you should return to over time. After you've thought about your values and wishes, it's important to share your information with your loved ones. Holidays are a good time to start having these discussions with the people you would want to be around if you became very sick. Pick a calm and quiet place to talk. The talk doesn't have to have a certain structure, Let it just happen. And you don't need to establish everything with one conversation. After the conversation, I often tell my patients to use their cell phone or tablet to film themselves telling their loved ones what is most important in their lives regarding medical care. They can then send the video to them. And if you are ready, complete the appropriate legal paperwork. Now you're ready to complete the last step, talking with your healthcare team. Talking with your doctor is vital, since he or she will know your medical condition best and will be able to help translate your preferences into an actionable medical plan. There are three general approaches to medical care for people who are very sick. They are life prolonging care, limited medical care, and comfort care. The first approach is life prolonging care. With this option, the focus is to lengthen life, This includes all medical care that is available in the hospital, like CPR, breathing machines, and treatments in the ICU. For healthy people, CPR has a good chance of success and has improved over time. However, for people with an advanced illness, CPR's overall effectiveness is not high. It's important to ask your doctor what the chances are that CPR will work in someone like you, sometimes people decide to try life-prolonging interventions for a short period of time. And if the interventions are not successful, they move to the next option, limited medical care. With limited medical care, the focus is to take care of treatable problems. People who choose this approach want medical care that will help restore their health. My father received limited medical care. He had IV medications with careful monitoring but he did not want any life-prolonging interventions like CPR and breathing machines. He chose to avoid these procedures even though he might have died without them. The third approach is comfort care. With comfort care, the main goal is to be comfortable. Treatments are only used if they help make people feel better and improve their quality of life. People who choose this approach are usually treated at home, in hospice, or sometimes in a nursing home. Talk to your doctor and your loved ones. If you let them know your choices, they can help make sure that you are at the center of and in control of your care. Did the doctor that took care of your loved one have a conversation like that with them? Did the doctor taking care of your loved one, speak at a literacy level that was about fifth grade so that if English wasn't your first language, you could actually understand what the heck the doctor was asking you? Did the doctor speak at a slow enough pace that a sick person who's vomiting can actually understand what they're asking them? Or are they speaking like this, which is my normal tone when I talk like I'm from New York, because I am? Are any of our doctors routinely having conversations like that? You're all shaking your heads, and I wish I had a mirror so that you could all see each other. And many of you are giggling. If I was up here and I said, most of your doctors are not amputating the correct side of the body, I bet not a single one of you would be giggling. But why is it that we talk about care at the end of life? We sort of say, well, that's just the way it is. No more. We can take back health care. Patients, families can take back health care. But you need to empower yourself with the questions that you need to ask and the knowledge of what are your medical options. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm I'm a doctor and I see patients in the hospital and I have 22 patients on average in the hospital. Those are really sick patients and I have about 12 minutes to see each patient. I don't even have conversations like that. And I think and breathe this stuff every second of every day. But what a great idea if patients could help me to remind me by saying, hey, doc, you know, I actually know some questions, and I think it's important that we talk about, you know, who I am, what my religious beliefs are, and where I am on my journey with this illness. How refreshing if a patient reminded me of my responsibility to you to make sure that you are always at the center of care. It's not a patient-centered care model that we live in today. It's truly doctor-centered, and we need to change that. Remember those 50 patients? Half of them had a conversation, the other ones had a conversation and saw a video. What do you think people wanted? So in yellow, we have life-prolonging care. In blue, we have limited care. And in green, we have comfort care. I am going to do the unthinkable in church and actually ask someone to take a guess. Dr. Stoltenberg. (laughs) What do you think, in the verbal arm, the group that just had a conversation... What do you think the distribution of preferences were? Out of 100%. You can't go wrong. That's why it's okay in church to ask you, because it's a guess. What do you think people wanted? And you're allowed to ask your three-year-old granddaughter for help. What percentage? 60-30-20. Now we're going to ask Dr. Stoltenberg's son's third grade teacher, who's sitting in front of him, To also, I mean, it's like a cluster over there of people who know Mark Stoltenberg. It's amazing. Um, So his third grade teacher, what guess would you say for the people who only had a verbal discussion? What do you think? 50%, which one? So this is what we found. 26% life prolonging care, 52% limited care, and 22% comfort care. Yeah, these are Boston people. They love those cheaters, the Pats and the Red Sox. I get it. But your guesses weren't all that far off. What do the two of you think about the group that actually saw the video that explained to people, what are the questions you need to ask, and what are your medical options? Dr. Saltenberg, What? Give me percentages. I'm a numbers guy. So 60% in blue, limited care, and 30% in green. And I'm sorry, third grade teacher, I don't know your name. Both. (laughs) Wow, you have humor, too. Not a single person wanted life-prolonging care. The overwhelming majority wanted comfort-oriented care. And the funny thing is that that column looks like what Consumer Reports tells us most Americans want. Is it possible that if Americans understood and empowered themselves with the questions that they need to ask of themselves and of their doctors, that if Americans actually understood you have options, you have choice when you're ill, that Americans would do better at navigating this crazy healthcare system that we doctors have designed with the healthy patient in mind, not the seriously ill, Is it possible that patients and families will do a better job of navigating this crazy healthcare system? I think the answer is a resounding yes. I don't think it's a subtle argument. If patients, if you all actually understood what are the questions you need to ask yourself, what's the conversation that you need to have with your kids this Thanksgiving, I think we'd live in a very different healthcare system in America today. And just so that we're clear, this is what American healthcare is like today. We try to have conversations, and about two-thirds of people are still dying in our hospitals and our healthcare facilities. But can we imagine a time, can you as a community imagine a time where all of you actually are in charge, where you know the questions you need to ask, where you know your medical options? What do we see? Most people wanting to focus on quality of life, not quantity of life. Most people wanting to focus whatever remaining time each of us has on this earth, that we stay at home, surrounded by our loved ones, focused on comfort, and not surrounded by people like me. I'm a stranger to most of my patients. They've never seen me before, and I don't think They want my face as the last image that they see in this world. Look, back in Brooklyn, if you did anything upon my body against my will, it was called assault and battery. In healthcare, it's called the standard of care. I want you to think about that. Now, we've conducted many studies, but I'm not going to talk about that because I don't want to bore you. But what I will talk about is what patients tell us what happens when they actually aren't informed and know what questions to ask their doctor. So we're going to play a short clip so that you know what is possible, what can we in this community do, what can we in this congregation do if we all simply have the conversation.
0: You explained what the disease is, and I heard you. But I didn't understand you. After the video, I now do. You know truly what is happening. Reality is not left to your imagination. You see it. Actually seeing the disease is better than verbalizing it. I had a very different idea of what the disease and interventions were. This video
2: was totally different. When a doctor is talking with me about a disease or or something like that, hey, I have ideas in my mind about it, but if you really see you know a real person who actually has it, then you really get it. Yes, I have my
0: own idea of what this disease was. After seeing it, it was very different. You get to see the real people, real patient, real disease, with the disease. Video makes it concrete and easy to connect to. Video is much better than talking. People don't understand what you are saying. I am a picture person. I am a better learner visually.
1: All of us have to take back health care. There are a lot of changes that are occurring in America today when it comes to health care. And I know that many of you are confused, many of you are scared, many of you are worried. Will I get the sort of care that I want when I have a serious illness? Will my mom get the care that she wants when she has the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease? Will my spouse get the type of care that he wishes and that he deserves? Look, we've partnered with over 200 places in nearly 25 states across the country. And we believe that as a community, you can change health care. Don't let the government, don't let doctors who don't want to talk about this, don't let anybody dictate what sort of care you get. When you have a serious illness, you can empower yourself. And just to give you a possibility, what is possible when a community gathers together and says, we're going to prioritize this? We have been working with an entire state where the entire state focuses on having the conversation. And that state is the Aloha State, Hawaii, where all 15 hospitals, all 50 nursing homes, all 10 hospices, all 600 providers, 600 doctors, and all 1.4 million residents of the state are prioritizing having the conversation and educating patients and families with tools like video so that when they get sick, they know what questions to ask. How many of you have been to Hawaii? Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't expect that. Um, I had never been to Hawaii. Uh, you know, for a kid from Brooklyn, you know, they asked me, Do you want to come to Hawaii? Uh, what kind of question is that? Um, 31 trips later, three years later, the entire state is just changing everything in healthcare. But you know, the funny thing is, where are these conversations taking place? Not just in the hospitals, churches. Are actually having the conversation. There's a set Sunday where after services people sit down and have the conversation as a congregation. I can take care of one patient at a time. I can help one family at a time. Every doctor can try to do that or there are ten times the number of clergy than there are doctors in this country. Imagine if every church opened up its doors and its hearts to having the conversation. And the neat thing that we did in Hawaii is, a video of me, I don't look Hawaiian, wouldn't really work in Hawaii, so we actually refilmed the video, and we used the chair of medicine at the University of Hawaii, who looks a lot more Hawaiian. And although we had created a Spanish version of the videos, there aren't many Latinos in the state of Hawaii. So what we did is, there sure are a lot of Chinese speakers. So we created Mandarin and Cantonese videos. But why stop there? We actually created the Filipino languages, which are very common in Hawaii, Ilocano and Tagalog. We even created videos in Japanese. Korean,
3: Vietnamese.
1: But when we looked at the most vulnerable populations, it was the minority populations. So we created the first ever Samoan video and Marshallese or Chucky's video. And what's remarkable, this is a three-year experiment, and halfway through, people are getting the type of care that they want and that they deserve. The first hospital that ever started prioritizing the conversation decreased hospital deaths by 30%. 30%! People are having the conversations in record numbers. What's possible if we, as a community, gather together and open our hearts to having the conversation? So, in the remaining time we have left, we're all on a journey. I, too, am on a journey. I didn't think 15 years ago, when I entered medical school, that I would be up here talking about care at the end of life. But I thought it would be important for you to understand why I do what I do. And so I wanted to share a story. This is from the book called What Else? The Conversation. But I wanted to share a story of what got me interested on this journey. And I just want you to think about the following question. Was the patient that I'm going to speak about right now, was that or will that be your loved one or perhaps someday even you? Taras Skrivchenko was a living part of American history as I later found out, Taras was an ethnic Ukrainian who had emigrated to the United States. He was one of the lucky few who escaped the chaos that took over during the months before World War II. Taras wanted to start over to rewrite the opening chapters of his life. At 18, he found a new home in a Ukrainian enclave in one of the mining towns of Appalachia and quickly found labor in the coal mines. For years, he led a life of unremitting physical toil, working 12-hour shifts, six days a week. Unfortunately for Taras, a lot of the detritus from smashing coal dug its way deep into the lining of his lungs. It would also plant the creeping cancer that would devastate him decades later. This once hulking mine worker had dwindled to a mere whisper of his former muscular self. This frail, bedbound, 78 78-year-old with inoperable lung cancer was admitted to my medical service during my first year of residency training. Slowly suffocating to death, he experienced both transient moments of hallucinatory joy and unconscious, yet peaceful, somnolence on the oncology ward. Taras was too confused to have a lucid conversation and lacked family members to guide his decision-making, so the medical plan was the default approach for all patients. Do everything. Despite my efforts to come up with a plan for Taras, I knew that his cancer surely had a plan of its own Doctors can fool themselves into thinking that they are in charge, even though disease and pathology are in the driver's seat. Frequently, we are only along for the ride. Taras was dying. I knew it and the nurses knew it. But as far as the medical team was concerned, we were going to perform CPR if his heart should stop beating. Exhausted from a long day, I paged the overnight resident to meet me in the cafeteria to review my list of patients before I signed out. The overnight doctor was a senior resident named Edward, and I was glad that a senior resident was on call that night because Taras was going to need him. He's a Ukrainian gentleman who worked in the coal mines of Appalachia. About eight months ago, he began having a cough saw his primary care doctor, who ordered a chest x-ray. Stop right there, Edward said. Start again. Start with initials. And then in one line, give me the pertinent info. Less is more. I have 30 other patients to cover tonight. When a resident is responsible for 30 other patients, too many personal details can muddle one's thinking. T.S. Is a 78-year-old male patient with metastatic lung cancer who presented with shortness of breath, I said, he's really sick. Modern medicine can be dehumanizing, and the first step in that process is to remove all the individualized details, to obliterate personhood, and replace it with patienthood. Code blue! Code blue! Edward and I sprinted towards the oncology ward, racing through the obstacle course of stretchers. We finally arrived out of breath at Thadis' room. I was always taught to hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. But it's not always clear how to define the worst. The gathered nurses who had ordered the code blue had already started CPR. I clumsily jammed my hands into a pair of rubber gloves and joined the ritual, which is far more physically demanding and brutal than what is portrayed on television. My clasped hands pressed hard against Thadis' frail chest, and all I could hear and feel were the cracking of his ribs. Edward stood at the front of the bed. I searched for a pulse on Thadis' neck. Any fat had melted away long ago, and all I could feel was cartilage and windpipe. It's an eerie feeling sliding bloody-gloved fingers along the skin, searching for signs of life. Shockingly, I found a pulse, thought us had a normal rhythm. The team had saved the patient, and now it was time to transfer him to the ICU. We squeezed into a narrow elevator as the doors closed. I kept my hand on his carotid artery to make sure he had a pulse, until I realized he no longer had one. Taras was almost dead. There was no space alongside the gurney, so I jumped on, straddled him, and started performing CPR. In all likelihood, the cancer had spread to the thin sac around his heart, with blood and fluid seeping into the sac, preventing the heart from pumping. To get the heart beating again, a doctor must emergently stick a large needle into the patient's chest. We needed to move fast. Do you feel comfortable doing this? Edward said. I told him that I had performed the procedure on a cadaver in anatomy class, but i only seen one on a patient. See one, do one, teach one. Here's your chance on a warm body, he rejoined. I descended from the gurney. Edward handed me a large needle. I was trembling. You don't know how deep to slide the needle into the body in order to draw out the fluid. Every body is different. Some are fatter than others, and some are more muscular than fat. I pierced Thaddeus' skin just below the sternum. No luck. I tried again, and again, and again. By the fourth time, I gave up. Residents are usually allowed three strikes before being asked to stop. Edward gave me a fourth since this was my patient. I should have stopped earlier. Thadis's rib cage had become a pincushion from all my attempts. As soon as we entered the ICU, the ICU team used an ultrasound and removed the fluid. Dadas had a heartbeat again. Tharos's care was now being managed by the ICU team, so Edward and I headed back to the cafeteria to grab some coffee. After every code blue, the team is expected to review what transpired. It's a ritualized moment to grapple with the trauma surrounding a full-on code. Debriefings are always difficult moments, as each of us dials down the rapid pace of a code blue to digest the events that have just transpired. We sat quietly. We just completed a by-the-book code, but I wonder if we did the right thing, I said. Perhaps it was because I was a young doctor and I had not yet been numbed to the brutal experience of caring for hundreds of patients. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. Everything was by the book. Look, this is the system. We have a job to do. Edward said. We both knew that something was not right. I can't believe we just did all that to a man who's got one foot in the grave. I pushed, not mincing my words. Would he have wanted any of this? Would you have wanted any of this? Would you do this to your dad? Something is wrong with a system that puts terminal cancer patients through torture. Edward put a hand on my shoulder. It's going to be alright. You're still new at this. You'll get used to it. Get some sleep. Page me in the morning. Get used to it? Is someone supposed to get used to this? Over the next two days, Edward and I visited Taras every few hours in the ICU. He was no longer our patient, but we could not let go of him either. By the following morning, he had a tube or catheter in almost every part of his body, a grand total of eight plastic intrusions. Status was fixed. Doctors like to tackle problems and fix them. And it's truly amazing what modern medicine has achieved in a relatively brief span of time. The tougher issue, however, is when to recognize that the small fixes do not change the larger picture to recognize that fixing specific problems may not fix the whole patient. This is medicine's version of not seeing the forest for the trees. Doctors always search for the next fix, but we need to know when to use and not to use our growing toolkit of fixes. Thadis's heart had stopped three more times And miraculously, the ICU ICU team brought him back each time. But not surprisingly, a patient in the late stages of terminal cancer succumbed to his disease. Whatever the next new fix is, nature eventually takes her inexorable course. Taras died 48 hours after that initial code blew. Americans receive some of the best health care money can buy. We also experience some of the worst deaths in the developed world. The primary reason we experience such horrible deaths is doctors' failure to openly discuss medical care with seriously ill patients. Taras Skripchenko died 15 years ago. I have since witnessed hundreds of deaths. But his, which I experienced during the formative years of medical residency, haunted me for the first decade of my life as a young physician. I tried to struggle with that drama that had just unfolded in front of me. Today, I am a full-fledged medical doctor, a senior physician and teacher of others, yet I still think about TARAS each time I meet a new patient, a new beginning, a clean slate, but also a potential T.S. Thank you very much.
0: We'll take uh, some questions in a minute uh, before that though I'll, I'll give Angelo a chance to rest his voice. Um, I'll mention our next event uh, which is Christian Wyman a poet uh, he'll this is in your program he's joining us on January 28th in the new year seven o'clock again here in this space. Uh, if you'd like us to send you updates about events and we don't have your email please fill out one of these forms go to our website and enter your email. Uh, Or you can follow us on Facebook. Um, And you can also leave this form, by the way, for suggestions for future speakers. We're always looking. Uh, And I will pause to mention that uh, Angelo is here tonight on the the recommendation of one of my colleagues, Pastor Cheryl Matheson, who, um, if she were here, I would tell her thank you. Uh, She's actually down in Chicago doing some continuing education. So those of you who are part of this community of faith, uh, feel free to say thank you to her next time you see her. Um, I think you would all agree it was a good suggestion. And then let me just say a word of thanks. Uh, From the start of these uh, events 13 years ago, they have never uh, been on the budget item of the church's budget. They are supported 100% entirely by the gifts of individuals and corporations. Uh, Those are listed in your bulletin, uh, your program, sorry, Uh, Occupational hazard, Um, (laughs) so I'll just mention some of our corporate sponsors, Cressa, uh, Thrivent Financial, Sparky, Rapid Packaging, Mastercraft, Labels, Productivity, Inc., Fuzzy Duck, um, and then some educational partners, uh, including McLaurin, uh, which is where uh, Angela was uh, at the University of Minnesota today, and Luther Seminary and, of course, all of the individuals listed there. Um, Many of them are here with us tonight. Would you please give them your thanks for being able to join us at no cost? Okay. we will take now um, a few questions, maybe for 10, 12, 15 minutes, as many as as you'd like. There are mics here and over here. um, So do not be shy.
2: Thank you so much. As someone who is dealing with an almost 100-year-old father who is on the path that you describe, although he is not seriously ill, he is in an institution. You discuss the patient and the physician and the need for the conversation. There is another participant that you did not mention and that is the government regulations passed by legislatures in goodwill that create an environment where the institutions to cover their behinds, to follow the regulations slavishly, create a very inhospitable reality and deny the conversations in many ways. Can you address that, please?
1: Absolutely and that is a wonderful question that a young lady all the way in the back also asked me, but was too shy to come up and ask. Okay. I am paid $10,000 a day to keep your loved one in the intensive care unit each day. I am paid $150 if you choose hospice, and I am a hospice social worker or nurse that comes to your home and only gives one or two hours at most care that you want. I'm not going to lie to you. We live in a crazy healthcare system that is willing to pay $25,000 for fourth line chemotherapy for a patient in the advanced stages of cancer who has not benefited from first, second, third, or fourth line, but that oncologist will get reimbursed $25,000 for an extra week of life where there is absolutely no quality. This is the healthcare system that we live in today. We are paid to keep our beds full. We are paid the more procedures I do, the more money I get. We live in a healthcare system of perverse financial incentives. That is a reality. But there is change coming. There are pilots throughout the United States where people are trying different things. Now, I had a lovely conversation in the back um, with some folks who said, well, insurers are part of the problem. No doubt about that. But they're also part of the solution. So let me just give you some examples of what many healthcare systems around the country are trying to do. Today, I'm paid based on volume. The more I do, the more I'm paid. What we're trying to do is not pay for volume, but pay for value. So for instance, in the next few years, hospitals will not be paid to keep their beds full. They're going to be paid to provide medical care that is aligned or consistent with the type of medical care that you want. So from a hospital's perspective, if you tell me that you don't want to have all these interventions in the intensive care unit when you have an advanced terminal illness, I'm not gonna make money if I'm putting you in my intensive care unit. I'm not getting paid $10,000 a day anymore. I am getting paid to coordinate your care, to make sure that you get the type of care that you want. And in fact, The more I help you get that care, the better it is for my bottom line. These are the things that everybody around the country is trying to see. Is it possible for us to get it right if we change this fee for service, which is something that many of you have heard of, to something that focuses on value and quality? It's a start. Is it the answer? The only answer when it comes to care at the end of life, I'm going to be honest, is you. Because you're the only one who can tell us, stop. You're the only one who can help me understand when your father is not able to talk to me because he has sepsis and he's coming into my ER, you're the only one who could help me say, hey, I actually spoke with my dad. We had this conversation. And this is what was important to him. This is what he gave, gave him joy and happiness. And he told me, son, if I'm not able to walk around or to talk to my grandkids or to have the sun shine on my face, please don't try anything aggressive. I'm not saying let go of me immediately. But please, I don't want things that are not going to be helpful. At the end of the day, it's your voice that ultimately drives The car, But today, we're not there yet. And so I think there's a lot that's happening in healthcare that's slowly getting us there, but I also think it's important that we as people, as citizens of this country, I think it's important that we tell our elected officials, this is crazy. Why are you willing to give $25,000 to a chemotherapy agent that we know doesn't help, but you're not willing to pay $25,000 for that hospice nurse to come and change me to make sure that I'm not in my urine or feces. Why is it that we live in this healthcare system? Well, I'll be honest, because it's doctor-centered. If you, as a son or daughter, tell your doctor, hey, look, I want to do the best that I can to make sure that I honor and respect my dad, maybe we could meet halfway there. A lot of doctors don't want to talk about this. You know why? We weren't trained to have this conversation. The crazy thing is, and you mentioned it, um, you know, Medicare is now paying doctors to have this conversation. You all heard about it on Friday, right? Or many of you? So Medicare will now pay for me to have a conversation with you as if talking to your patient wasn't part of your duty. <laughs> you know, you got to be paid 100 bucks. It's $87, but who's counting? Um, you know what my big concern is? We're paying all these doctors now to start talking to you, but they've never been trained to talk to you. What are they going to do? Could you imagine if, we, if Medicare said, I'm going to pay $13,000 for a cardiologist to do a heart catheterization, but they didn't make sure that the doctor was actually trained to do a heart catheterization? I mean, we're paying these doctors now to talk to you, but it's the first time we're talking to you. So there is change afoot. We're trying, it's not fast enough. And as you all know, health care and politics and culture, that nexus is a tough one to navigate. But I, I am sure if you all, as a community, as a congregation, get together and at least raise awareness of this, we're off on the right foot. Thank you for your question. Yes.
4: Well, I certainly hope that the uh, changes that you're proposing will come to pass. But in light of the experience that I had, I have certain doubts. And maybe it's because my experience wasn't an end-of-the-life experience. Does that make a difference? But at age 46, 20 years ago, I was in the hospital and told that if I didn't have a certain surgery, I might not live. And I said, I do not want the surgery. I'll take my chances. I refuse the surgery. They said, we want you to have the surgery. Sign here your permission for us to do the surgery. I said, no, I will not sign. I do not want the surgery. They wheeled me into the operating room and did the surgery without my permission, with my express lack of permission. Later, after I got out of the hospital, they sent me the form and asked me to sign it again. I sent it back and said, no, you didn't have my permission then. You don't have it now. I talked to a friend who worked in a different hospital and asked if I had a right to sue. He said Probably not, because they have the legal right to operate on you if they think your life depends on it with or without your permission. Is that true, and if so, where does that put us?
1: So I'm going to be honest with you. You never have the right as a provider to do anything upon the body of a patient who has not given informed consent. This case law was done in the early part of the 1900s through New York State was one of the first cases. Now, if a doctor deems you incapacitated, in other words, you don't have, for lack of a better term, your wits about you, and you're not able to reason and make a decision, an informed decision, that's a different story. Clearly, that wasn't the case with you. So um, I I believe your friend is incorrect. Um, What they did was absolutely against every that we've taken, but also against the law. A patient must always give consent. And what a lot of us are worried about is that that rule we often think about when we have a patient who has an operation. But that rule also applies at the end of life. How many times am I doing procedures on a patient with an advanced illness who never gave me consent? Dadas never gave me consent, I just assumed. He wanted everything. And at the end of the day, when it comes to care at the end of life, it's an issue of informed consent. Thank you. Yes. Let's take uh, one more. One more. Last question. Sorry. Uh,
3: Okay. Thank you. I'll make it quick. I'm sort of a a do-it-yourself person. And when speaking about uh, end-of-life issues, um, I've always thought one way to handle it is to do it yourself. That is to say, don't involve the medical establishment. Um, there 's a lot of ways you could do this in a civilized manner. You could swim out to sea and just uh, just stay there <laughs> Another way is you could go to Holland and, and light up and puff yourself uh, into the comfort zone. shall we say you know <laughs> By the way, this is what the Maya do is a, a gesture of uh, thank you and uh, and um, adios, and all that. I say this kind of says it all. Thank you from the heart. Yeah.
1: So, just to be clear, <laughs> what we talked about for the last hour had nothing to do with the question that was that was up. I'm gonna, you know, answer the the question, but I'm gonna make the point that what we are talking about affects 3 million Americans every year. How each of us dies, there's 3 million Americans who die in our country every year. And I am concerned that there are 3 million people who don't have access to high-quality end-of-life care, that they don't have access to the best palliative care doctors in the country, that they don't have access to hospice, that they don't have access to controlling their pain and having their voices honored and respected. That's what I talked about for the last hour. All right. I will end with that. Thank you. Before you leave, just wait. (laughs) Thanks
0: Thanks to all of you again for coming out on what's becoming less beautiful of a fall. And uh, we are so grateful for your presence with us tonight. And so we've got a little gift for you. This is a small piece of granite that says, "With thanks to Angelo Velandes for bringing faith to life." We do thank you very much. Thank you very
1: much. Thank
2: you. I appreciate it. Thank you.